And I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 2. I know that's a little strange, but we covered verse 1 when we looked at chapter 10 last week. Um, we have two chapters left in the book of Daniel. I know that uh, it's possible for someone to basically go to church their entire lives, listen to sermon after sermon, and hear very little from the Old Testament, specifically on Sunday mornings from the Old Testament prophets. It's my conviction it shouldn't be this way. Now, I've been preaching here for 11 years. This is my first endeavor on Sunday mornings to preach through a book like Daniel, and I'm not oblivious to the reality that it's probably been challenging for many of you, and if you find an anxiety or an anxiousness sometimes to get back to the more familiar parts of the Bible, specifically the New Testament, I can't say that that's foreign to me as well. Nevertheless, this is important, and we need to pay attention to what God has spoken in the fullness of His Word, and we're trying to finish well now in the book of Daniel with two chapters left. Now, just to give you an idea of where we are in the book of Daniel, this is how chapter 10 began. It says, the first couple verses of chapter 10 now, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. That's from the New King James. So chapter 10 begins by telling us that Daniel has received a message, and chapter 10 doesn't tell us much about this message, except that it really bothered Daniel. He went into mourning over it. At least that's my understanding of the order of the text. It was very troubling to him. Now, as I said, I'm, I'm teaching out of the New King James here. That's been my tradition for these 11 years. And it says that the message was true, but the appointed time was long. Last week, we looked at the Hebrew words behind that phrase, and I showed you how other English versions of the Bible translate those words. You'll notice in all of the other translations, without fail, they understand the Hebrew words to be speaking of a message concerning a great conflict a great war as opposed to a long time. There was going to be a conflict in the future. That makes sense if Daniel is in fact mourning. You wouldn't necessarily mourn over something that was simply going to be a long time, but something that was going to involve a great conflict would accompany a sense of sadness. And I'll ask you now this morning, as you sit here in New Paris, Ohio, in the middle of October in the year 2023, let me just ask you to ask yourself that question. There is a certain sadness when there's news of war and conflict, isn't there? Is that not true? Um, I don't think, I, I would hope that none of us are immune to that, that there is a, a sense of loss and sadness at, at news of war and battle and conflict. And I'd, I'd say that's probably exacerbated in some degrees the older that you become. I guess it's possible that the older that you grow, the more accustomed you get to these things and you become somewhat desensitized by them. But for me, I find for my part in it, it's the opposite of that. And the older that I get and the longer that I live and the more people that I encounter, the more sad the thought of war and conflict uh, become to me. Now, beginning in Daniel 11, we get a description of this conflict, this message that Daniel has received. The rest of chapter 10 sets the stage for it. We covered it all last week. Now we're looking at chapter 11, and so we'll get a bit of the history here. Of course, Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C. Now, for those of you who struggle with putting B.C. and A.D. and stuff together, 600 years before Jesus, the book of Daniel is written approximately so. It's not until the 3rd century A.D., approximately 300 years after Jesus, about 900 years apart, 
that a guy by the name of Porphyry, who wrote a book called Against Christians, began to claim that the book of Daniel was, in fact, a forgery, which is a pretty big claim, especially be making 900 years after a book was written. So for about eight, 900 years, there is no evidence that anyone had a problem with the book of Daniel until this Roman man named Porphyry. He really didn't like Christians. Uh, Christianity by that time, this is a, several hundred years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christianity at that time had become so incredibly popular in the Roman Empire that it was beginning to supplant the traditional worship of the Roman gods. And this was creating all kinds of social upheaval in the, in the empire of Rome. And why wouldn't it supplant the worship of the Roman gods? This was a message of freedom. This was a message that declared human dignity. This was a message that recognized the preciousness of all human life. This was a message that chewed into the fabric of a slave economy that Rome was built on. This was a message that assured people that they could have peace with God. This was a message about life-changing progress, and there was evidence of peoples whose lives had changed, flourishing and growing all around them. Most of all, this was a message that God loves us and has paid a great price to know us through the offering of His Son, the death and resurrection of Jesus, affording us everlasting life with God. This was a glorious message, and it was having quite the impact in Rome, and this man, Porphyry, among others, did not like it. I'll read you a quote. This is from John Wolvard's commentary here about Porphyry. It says, he began by carefully lining up every verse in Daniel 11, 1 through 35, with every corresponding historical event, and concluded that no one could have prophesied about these events in the future. Wolver then notes for us that Christians responded strongly to the criticisms of Porphyry when he wrote this book against Christians, and Jerome wrote a commentary of the book of Daniel that was the standard for the next 1,000 years. So I want you to think about this for a second. Here is a guy, the first guy to have a big problem with the book of Daniel. And his problem is not based on any evidence or textual criticism, he simply hated Christians, that much was clear. The book of Daniel was hardly his only attack. And upon examining the clearly fulfilled prophecy in Daniel 11, he knew it had to be a forgery because it had all come true. That remains the key focal point of the criticisms of the book of Daniel today. That is the criticism of this book. People do not reject the Bible because of facts and evidence. They reject it because they don't believe in God. Therefore, miracles and prophecy must not exist. They, this is to put it as John puts it, they love their sin, they love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil, and they do not want to change. So the Bible must not be true. That's not logical, but it is the conclusion. And this is essentially how Jesus describes unbelief in general. Now, here is the Lord Jesus in Luke 16. He's telling a story about a rich man who finds himself in hell. And in his torment, this rich man asks Abraham, Abraham, would you please send a divine messenger to my brothers who are still alive uh, so that they can be warned about this place because there's, there's a lot of suffering here after death. And according to Jesus, Abraham responds, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have their Bibles, Moses and the prophets. 
They have the account of God from the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. So they know who God is. They understand sin. They understand judgment. They have the prophets, which tell us of God's plan and what he is doing, what he has done, what he will do in the future. They don't need a divine messenger or, or, or someone to come from the grave to, to deliver this message specifically to your brothers. That's what Abraham says. But the rich man replies, No, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. This is what we always tell ourselves. If there were some big miracle, if there was some indisputable evidence, then people would be shaken from their spiritual slumber and they'll believe and they'll respond. If I could just heal this person, or if an angel were to appear, or if Moses showed up and parted some great body of water, if we could just line up the Bible prophecies with everything we hear on the news, if we could just have some indispute, then people would believe. I sat in a coffee shop uh, this summer with a young man who I've known since he was a kid, and I was talking to him. He's, he's completely wandered away from the faith. He doesn't believe in, in, in the things of, of God at all anymore. And it has nothing to do with uh, God being unfaithful or with revelation of Scripture. It has nothing to do with that. It's all about uh, human suffering and, and not understanding of these things, even though he knows what the Bible says. And at one point, his argument was reduced to him, him, him telling me very clearly, God, if God really loved us, he would show up in every single generation to every single part of the world and every single family and perform miracles and convince us of who he is and then we would all know and, and this was and I'm listening to this and that is not what happens. Of course, a man did rise from the dead. Jesus did perform miracles. People saw Jesus in the flesh after his resurrection and we're told in the Gospels, many would not believe. And Abraham answers here, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. This man, Porphyry, he, think about this, he, he researches diligently for God knows how long. I mean, can you imagine in the ancient world what, what it must have taken to pour through histories and try to line up everything in Daniel chapter 11? If you just decided, okay, I want to go home and I'm going to use the power of the internet and Google and my, my computer, and I'm going to use the great database of information readily available, and I'm going to take, without any commentary help, I'm going to take this stuff from the book of Daniel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 35, and I'm going to try to match up every part of this with how it was historically fulfilled prophetically. Can you imagine how long that would take you? I mean, Raymond, do you think you could get that done this afternoon? Probably, it would probably take some time. Here is a guy in ancient time trying to do all of the research himself, and he completes it so that he presents it verse by verse, lining up with his... He does all the work and showing incredible scholarship, lining up every verse with its corresponding fulfillment so that he saw with his own eyes by his own research that all of what the Bible said in Daniel 11, 1 through 35, that was yet future, had in fact happened, but did he believe? Of course not. Instead, he took his pen and began the lie that the whole thing must be forged because it was all too true. Which is what you would expect if it came from God. But it must not come from God because there is no God, at least not this God. So it must not be true. Well, look at the verses and I'll warn you, this is going to be a lot of reading. We're going to read, you know, verses 2 through 20 now in one shot. 
Okay, so focus and stay with me, and I'm going to ask for a little trust. This is not going to turn into an encyclopedic journey through the book of Daniel chapter 11. So just re stay with me. Don't wander off, okay? Verse 2, Daniel chapter 11. And now I will tell you the truth. Remember, this is an angel speaking to Daniel. Now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. The fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion, and at the end of some years they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. And I can see your eyes glazing over, but stay with me, we're not done. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt, with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. He shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of, of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will. And no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but shall not stand with him or be for him. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. Whew! Whew. Can exhale. Whew, we made it. I know that was a lot. 
And aren't you ready for me to just describe every one of those little references in, in great detail this morning? No, Zach is saying yes. Zach, if, so I have, I have uh, several commentaries. You're welcome to borrow from me this week. And you can dig into these, you know, one by one. And, and you can see all of, the, you know, I'm glad you're in it. I did it too. I went through all of them. But I don't think that there's a ton of profit in going through all of these things. They have happened. They have been fulfilled. Instead, I'm going to summarize for you. Verse 2 talks about the four great Persian kings because, remember, Daniel's writing from the Persian Empire. He lived through the entire Babylonian Empire. Seventy years of captivity under Nebuchadnezzar and, and the, the, the rulers that would follow, finally Belshazzar and the conquering. So Daniel has lived through all that. He's 90-ish years old at this point in time. And this is the beginning of the Persian Empire. And, and so verse 2 describes the four great Persian kings. And history knows them very well. Then in verse 4, it describes how the last Persian king, a guy by the name of Xerxes, okay, ticked off all of the Greeks. He really made them mad. He raised a massive army, one of the largest armies the world has ever seen, and he tried to conquer them. And, and as he was doing it, he was committing all sorts of atrocities and evils against them. So when a young Greek man named Alexander came to power, he mercilessly attacked and destroyed the Persian Empire. I mean, Alexander's life purpose was to kill the Persians, to make an end to it. Now, Alexander the Great died very young, and so the world which he conquered was divided into four parts. This is very well known historically. He had no heir of his own, and say, who should we leave the kingdom to on his deathbed? He's purported to have said, give it to the strong. So it's divided up into military segments, into four parts. Verses 5 through 20 describe how two of those four parts of the divided Greek empire, two separate portions of the Greek empire, fought with each other back and forth. That's all that's in those verses. One part is called the north, that's the Seleucid Empire, the Syrian Empire, often in history, same thing. The other part is called the South, that's the Ptolemaic Empire, or the, the land of Egypt. Here's a map, and this map, I think, basically describes what's happening in verses 5 through 20. Okay, now I hope you can see it okay. But the Seleucus territory is the kingdom of the north, often referred to as Syria in world history. And the Ptolemy territory is the kingdom of the south, which is called Egypt. Both of these are Greek empires. not pharaohs. These are Greek empires. But the Greek empire was divided when Alexander died, like I said. So they both often went to war with each other. And verses 5 through 20 describes how these two competing Greek empires went to war with each other. There's something like 130 different prophetic events in those verses that people have lined up dogmatically. I mean, not just Christians, but again, secular historians have lined up dogmatically with the events that unfolded in these hundreds of years. That's why secular historians don't accept Daniel 11 as being genuine. It has to have been written after the fact because it lines up precisely with what unfolded. And there's all kinds of interesting stuff in there. Like I said, if, if you'd like to learn more, I'd be happy to sit down and go through a commentary with you. I mean, there's stuff about Cleopatra, her birth, her original marriage, how she ends up in Egypt. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in these verses that's foretold. But as they're having this battle between the kingdoms of the north and the south, notice there in the star who's in between them. And this is why it's so heartbreaking for Daniel. God's people in Israel who have, in Daniel's day, remember, they've been in captivity for 70 years. Daniel has just experienced the freedom for them to go home and rebuild Jerusalem, right? It's not even rebuilt yet. And he receives this vision that says, for hundreds of years into the future, this land 
that they have been anxiously preparing to rebuild and now people are diligently giving their lives to rebuild under the Persian Empire, this land is going to be trampled back and forth by armies and conflict for hundreds of years. That's a crushing thing if you think about being a 90-year-old Daniel who has longed for the return of God's people to the Holy Land, who has longed for the return of worship in God's, among God's people, who has longed for all these things his entire adult life without seeing them. And now, at the end of his life, he receives a message that says, and there's going to be conflict over the face of all of this for hundreds of years to come. Your people just being marched over back and forth by kings in the north and kings in the south. Now, we're going to read verses 21 through 23. It says, And in his place, this is the the last king of the north that was being discussed there in verse 20, In that king's place shall arise a vile person, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. Now, the first thing we notice here is that at this point in the Syrian empire, a vile person comes to power. This is a man named Antiochus IV. And he's a well-known historical figure, albeit not all that significant to world history. Instead, his significance is tied up in his antagonism to the Jews. The previous Antiochus, who he, who he uh, succeeds, was far more great in terms of what world history is concerned with, with military conflict and governance and rule. But this Antiochus, this Syrian king, is well known because almost in a Hitler-type fashion, he has this um, irrational persecution of Israel in mind. Antiochus IV. Now, in verse 22, it says that he breaks the prince of the covenant. Of the covenant. This is a reference to the murder of the high priest in Israel, a guy by the name of Ananias, who, remember, Israel doesn't have a king at this point in time. So the priest was the one responsible with administering the law and keeping the law of Moses. The priest was an authoritative figure. So he, he is the prince of the covenant. He's the one keeping the covenant in Israel at the time. And Antiochus has him murdered and installs instead a priest after a different fashion to be high priest who will go along with all of Antiochus' reforms which are meant to take people away from the God of Israel and into the worship of the various Greek deities. Let's read a little bit more, read a little bit more here in verses 24 through 26. It says, He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province. He shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. He shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. Remember, he himself is a king in the north, a Syrian king. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. For they shall devise plans against him, yet those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him, his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. So, verse 24 tells us Antiochus Antiochus pillages Israel, 
whom he's not at war with at the time, but he loots their land in the temple. We're also told in verse 25, Antiochus goes to war with the Egyptian empire, the Ptolemaic empire in the south. And what's the outcome of this Ptolemaic war in the south when it says he shall stir up power and courage against the kings of the south? And what's, what's his goal? What's the end game? Well, the king of the south, that's Egypt, will fight against Antiochus, but he loses. And there's a lot of internal betrayal in the south when he loses. And Antiochus then becomes in full power throughout the region of the north and large parts of the southern formerly Ptolemaic dynasty. Well, okay, you're like, oh, this is interesting history, but what's going on here? Well, verse 27 and 28. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So here's the gist of this. Neither Antiochus nor the southern king and the southern empire are going to be honest with each other. They're going to sign treaties to put this war to an end, but they're both going to break them. They're going to sit at the same table telling lies to one another. That's a geopolitical reality that we're not unfamiliar with. Um, having secured the upper hand, Antiochus will return to Israel, to the glorious land, why he's so concerned with this small part of all of his vast territory is, an, is irrational. You know, there's no reason for him to do this. But having secured the opportunity, he's going to return there. And what's he going to do? He's going to put an end to the worship of Israel's God. Now just think about that for a second, if you will. Of all the things that a conquering world leader could become obsessed with, I mean, history is replete with examples of this, right? Many of them devote themselves to building huge monuments. You might remember Nebuchadnezzar, when we, when we read about Nebuchadnezzar. What did he, he looks out at glorious Babylon and the palaces and the city. that he, one, of the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You can think about all these things, and of, of all the things he could devote his time to, his, bio, his, his diabolical intention is on afflicting the people of Israel and their God. That's what he devotes himself to. Think about that. It says, His heart shall be moved against the Holy Covenant. There's nothing sensible in that. In fact, Antiochus is often referred to in history as Antiochus the Insane. The Insane, by historians. Because his behavior towards Israel is not logical doesn't seem to make sense. But what I would tell you is this is not insanity, it's satanic. Now I'll remind you of what we looked at last week. There are spiritual rulers of darkness in this world behind actual kingdoms and thrones. Explain the Holocaust and the fascination of Hitler with the extermination of Jewish and Christian people throughout Europe. And of course, many historians will call Hitler insane in that fashion. But it is, there's a difference between insanity and Satanism. There's a, there's not, it's, not, it's not insanity. The ruler of this world has always and will always be an enemy of God's people because he is an enemy of our God. Now, verses 29 and 30, let's read them here. At the appointed time, he, this is Antiochus, shall return and go south again. So he's going to go fight the south again. But it shall not be like the former or the latter. In other words, he's not going to have a great victory. 
For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. Now what happens historically is Antiochus eventually goes on another campaign in the south against Egypt. But he's not nearly as successful this time because by this time, a little upstart group from the far east called the Romans, uh, or from the far west called the Romans start to show up. And that's what it means by the ships of Cyprus here. Cyprus is uh, the, from the Hebrew word kittim, and uh, the Romans sailed into Egypt, into the Ptolemaic area, and they began conquering uh, portions of it themselves. And when Antiochus shows up, uh, they famously uh, put him down, and then they, uh, having uh, held back his armies from uh, taking the lands that they had already conquered, they draw a circle around him in the sand, and they say, decide before you walk out of this circle whether or not you're going to continue these campaigns. So it's literally a line in the sand, if you want to get the idea. And surrounded by the Romans, he decides, probably better leave well enough alone at this point in time. And instead, it says he very obviously and frustrated and angrily comes back to Israel after his defeat. He returns in rage. And there is a huge persecution of Israel. Now, the kind of persecution in Israel that is unique, even among all the various persecutions that Israel has, hustered, has, has suffered throughout the history of the world, uh, one of these times. It's overtly religious. Antiochus makes things like circumcision illegal, the reading of the Torah illegal, uh, forces Israelites to abandon their food laws and their customs, all of this under the threat of death. If you are a woman who is found to have circumcised your son, you could be killed. If you, like it all, I mean, this was uh, forced um, removal from uh, the law of Moses. Verse 30 explains that he's trying to get the Jewish people to ab abandon their covenant with God altogether, and the Jews who do abandon their covenant with God, he rewards he treats them very well. He gives them the land that belonged to others. He sets them up and establishes in places of leadership. So it's not a racial thing, which is important to understand. It, it's, it's not all Jews, I'm gonna, you know, just going to kill them all. No, no, it's, it's a religious thing. It is a satanic thing. It is about the God behind the Jews, not the Jews themselves. Verse 31 Forces shall be mustered by him, they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place the abomination of desolation. So Antiochus occupies Jerusalem, begins to enforce all these laws with his armies, and of course many resist him, and what happens, uh, tens of thousands of Jews die. Um, that's the first thing that happens. So there's a, um, a, a horrific kind of... Uh, of, of um, atrocious defeat, not just a, a regular conquering. All the sacrifices in the temple are stopped. There are no more priests allowed to offer anything to God on behalf of the people anymore. Uh, the priests themselves are forced to defile themselves or face death by breaking the law of God so that they wouldn't be acceptable for offering sacrifices anymore even should they have opportunity. And an idol of the Greek god Zeus is erected in the temple of God in Jerusalem. And pigs are offered on the altar of God to this statue, and this is called the abomination of desolation. Okay? 
Now, back when we were in Daniel chapter 8, there was this prophetic vision Daniel had of a battle between Persia and Greece. And it was a battle depicted as a battle between a ram and a goat. Very fittingly, you might remember that. A ram represented Persia, the goat represented Greece. And those are very apt reasons for both of those, which we won't uh, review today. But you remember there was this battle in Daniel chapter 8. And I know it's been a while, but God has been showing Daniel throughout the course of his life a progression of the world empires from his life on, a progression of the empires that would rule Israel. In chapter 2, there was a statue, and it described this progression of empires. And In chapter 7, the same kingdoms are represented again by animals. In chapter 8, two of those kingdoms, specifically Persia and Greece, are represented as a ram and a goat. And there is a lot in Daniel chapter 8 about this king, Antiochus the fourth. And now we're reading about him again in Daniel 11. This is clearly a figure whom God is telling Daniel has prophetic implications far beyond his own life. Namely, we find that Antiochus the fourth was a real person, a real king in the Greek empire, but his oppression and corruption of the Jewish people is symbolic of what the coming Antichrist will be like. So, Antiochus is a type of the Antichrist. What he does is like what the Antichrist will do. That's so we're told. This point's made very clearly in Daniel 7 and 8. Now we read in Daniel 11.31 this week about the abomination of desolation set up by Antiochus IV. And that was also spoken of in Daniel 8.13, the abomination of desolation. Both verses mention the stopping of the daily sacrifices to God, an abomination or a transgression of desolation that refers to Antiochus setting up this statue of Zeus in God's temple. And this is all very interesting historically, right? Until you open your Bible to the New Testament. And Jesus gives us his explanation of this. In Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16, Remember, Jesus lived far after Antiochus lived. This is hundreds of years after the fulfillment of these things that we're reading about. But he's not talking about Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11. He's not talking about these things as if they are merely in the past. Instead, when he is asked, what will be the end of this age and what will be the sign of your coming? This is what he says. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus is saying that in his own way, the coming Antichrist will perform the same kind of thing in Israel. And that thing he does, the abomination of desolation, will be the sign that the end of the age is near and Jesus is about to return. Now, in Daniel 9.27... This is the place where the Antichrist appears in that 70-week prophecy. And many of you remember standing over there, me and all the math and the weeks of years and all that stuff. And don't worry, we're not going to do that again uh, today if, in fact, uh, you've had uh, quite enough of all of that. Uh, like I came here to go to church, not to, not to have a math lesson. That's all right, I understand. Um, but this is the prophecy where uh, Daniel is described by by uh, Gabriel, uh, what will happen, and the, and the appearance of the Antichrist right in the middle of that, in that prophecy, Daniel 9, 27. And this is what it says. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's a seven-year period of time. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation 
which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So what Antiochus did in Israel will be like what the Antichrist will do when he breaks his peace treaty with Israel during the Great Tribulation, which Jesus is speaking of. And that will be the sign for Israel to run, to flee. And Jesus is very adamant in this to Israel. When you see something like this happen, don't even go down inside to gather your belongings. Run. And pray that your flight not be in winter. And pray that you not be pregnant and nursing. I mean, it's, it's run for your lives. Um, because the Antichrist will perform his own version of these things. Well, let's finish here by reading from Daniel 11, verses 32 through 35. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong, carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. But many shall join with them by intrigue, and some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, to purify them, to make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Now we can look at what Antiochus did. We can marvel at all the prophetic work of God in showing Israel what would happen in the hundreds of years ahead. There's value in all of that. I've tried to summarize as best I can this morning while being respectful of our time together and our different inclinations. For every Zach who raises his hand and says, show me every single line of interpretation, there's someone going like this, I don't don't come here for history lessons. I mean, I understand. So I'm trying trying to be respectful of both here. But I think it's fitting in light of what's going on in the world today to end at a different place. And just to make the point, we worship the God of Israel. We don't worship Israel. We worship the God of Israel. He is our God. That doesn't mean that we never condemn what a nation Israel might do. I mean, certainly the Bible is filled with all kinds of things that the nation Israel did that they shouldn't have done. Christians, I don't think, are supposed to just blindly support whatever any nation does. You know... And we have to acknowledge, Israel nationally is a nation that is in rejection of their Messiah, of their King. The suffering of Israel is suffering that they will not experience under the kingship of Jesus Christ. It is a New Testament principle of Jesus Christ that Israel's suffering in this age is directly correlated to the rejection of God's Messiah, which he promised them. So I read the passage that I did at the beginning of the sermon when Jesus looks over Jerusalem and weeps. But the satanic persecution of Israel ethnically and the genocidal ambitions against Israel, which are clearly stated by its worst enemies, should be a reminder to Christians that we live in a world so broken by sin and so under the governance of spiritual darkness that only the return of Jesus will bring lasting peace on this earth. For 11 years now, I have preached to you, rarely venturing into anything remotely political, but my heart is really heavy from the events of the past week. My spirit has been stirred up by the lies and the manipulation of public opinion. Lies, I believe, of satanic origin. So we'll make one more point. There are 15 million Jews in the world today. Seems like a large number, but it's not. 7 million in Israel, 6 million in the United States. Now, if you are doing basic math, 
That means outside of our country and Israel, there are scarcely any Jews populated in the world. It's pretty much our two countries. They are surrounded nationally by enemies, and apart from the United States and a few other European nations without any support by any government in the world, there is no place for them to flee across land or sea. I won't give you a history lesson, but these are things that you can freely look into by yourself. Israel as a nation was established after World War II because the Western world realized that the Jews could not be asked to depend on Gentile nations to defend them and protect them anymore. In Hitler's regime, the Jews came to understand that even if you are a citizen of a country and pay taxes to a country and serve in a military in a country, there is nothing to prohibit that same country to whom you have supported and counted yourself a loyal citizen. There's nothing to prevent that that country from turning on you and exterminating you. And there is no other Jewish government or nation in the world at the time of World War II to say anything or to defend them or to step up. They were without military. The military that they thought was theirs began to persecute them. So in the aftermath of World War II, Israel was given a homeland, a homeland that was already rightfully theirs to begin with. Unless you be misled by much popular media, do your research to understand how the so-called Arab people ended up in Israel in the first place. They were not there first. It was not their land. So they were given a place. And they were immediately attacked by their enemies on all sides. And no Western nations came to their defense. And attacked at six and seven and eight to one odds, they won. And years later, they were attacked again, and they won, and they were attacked again, and they won. And they will continue to be attacked until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will return, by the way, to save them, as they once again are under attack. When Israel's enemies declare their intention to wipe every Jew from the face of the planet, we should listen to them. We should believe what they are saying. Does that mean that Israel never does anything wrong? Does that mean that all of Israel's national actions are pure and right? Does that mean that they never cause or inflict any suffering on them? No, I'm not saying any of that. But there's a difference between doing wrong things and publicly stating that it is your national and civil goal to eradicate Jews from the planet and being treated as if you were like any other Western nation in the world. It is, by the way, a plausible goal for organizations like Hamas, who have been ruling in the Gaza Strip since 2006. It's a plausible goal for them to say, we want to wipe every Jew from the face of the planet. There's only 15 million of them, pretty much gathered in only two places. They're serious when they say that. And when people in our country and in London and in Germany and Australia and France and people in the Western world rally in mass to support the murder of Jewish people in Israel, we should pay attention. We should pay attention to that. We should pay attention to senators and to people in government who take to their social media accounts before Israel had any retaliation and post pictures of Palestinians and celebrate them on hang gliders because the people on hang gliders coming from Palestine came to murder and to rape and to kill and to kidnap and torture we should pay attention there are mobs celebrating in the western world the murder and rape and kidnapping of Jewish men, women and children regardless of what you think about Israeli politics, the satanic 
contention to bring destruction upon God's people is obvious. It is unyielding. It was evil under Pharaoh. It was evil under the Philistines. It was evil under Haman. It was evil under Antiochus. It was evil under Herod. It was evil under Rome in 70 AD. It was evil under the rise of Islam in the 7th century. It is evil under Hitler today. It is evil under the guise of all of these various governments and institutions. This is not a political rallying cry from the pulpit. I've never told anybody how to vote. I've never told anybody how I vote. I'm not trying to persuade you to follow a political agenda. It is a call to see evil for what it is and to see satanic influence on the world throughout the generations of human civilization for what it is. Israel will never cease to have enemies who seek to destroy them because there is a spiritual adversary to Israel. This is Satan, and he hates Israel's God. And their God is our God, though they reject to their own destruction their Messiah. And closing, I know this has not been a traditional message. I understand. There's been no gospel presentation and altar call. I understand. If you want to give me another 45 minutes, we can do all of that. But in closing, I'd ask you to bow your heads and hearts with me. And this is what I want to pray for. And every Christian should be able to pray for these things, regardless of what you think about anything else. I want you to pray for the return of Jesus Christ with me. Quietly and in your hearts, I want you to pray for the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus will bring peace on the earth. He will bring peace to Israel. He will cast out the ruler of this world. He will be light and truth to every person on the planet. So if you would, just bow your heads, close your eyes, and pray for the return of Christ. Father, I do not have the economic and the military solutions required to broker peace between countries and nations, nor do I have the spiritual discernment to look any man or woman in the eye and just recognize light and darkness for what it is. And we recognize when we see battle and conflict and our war afflicted by these things, we recognize the inadequacy of any world leader to address the fundamental spiritual reality that this world is under the sway of an evil power. And Father, it is shocking from the relatively peaceful village, part of the world place that I live in. It is shocking to see evil unmasked, but it is even more so shocking to see people then pretend that evil is not evil. And it's alarming, the lack of moral clarity. And to say anything about this feels like it's just, it's just throwing a stone in the ocean. And when I think of that, when I think of my own inadequacy to address these things comprehensively, to explain these things comprehensively, to solve these things comprehensively, I am reminded that I am not called to solve any of them. Nor can I. But I pray, Father, for the one whom you have determined before the foundations of the world, who is called to solve all of them,
I pray, Father, that He will come. Please, hasten the return of Jesus Christ. Let us stand as citizens of that kingdom. Let us kneel before His throne. Father, we we seek the security of His kingdom. We seek the peace of knowing that He will wipe away every tear from our eye, that there will be no more sorrow and no more death. Help us to preach a message that while dealing with personal sin and a personal need for salvation includes faith and promises made of eternal life in a kingdom, a real kingdom, where we will know you, where we will be citizens. Strengthen us through the power of the Holy Spirit to make that message compelling. Help us to be shrewd and wise as we present it and help us to be faithful even to the end. Father, I ask that you will bless our work here. We're not in Israel, but we are also not in obscurity. For we know that your eye is on the godly. Your eye is on the righteous. Bless the work of our hands and work mightily in the nations around us. Work mightily in the nations of the world to see people saved, to see people come to Jesus, to see people make peace with you. Help our lives to be lived to that end. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.